This is Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music, presented by Anna Pickard. This is Episode 5, Treasure Seekers. On the roof of the Royal Academy of Music on the busy Marylebone Road are two of the more surprising treasures of the Royal Academy. The two beehives were installed in April 2020 and produced their first jars of golden honey later that year. In this episode, a tour through a building that is never quiet, we'll discover more treasures of the Academy, from the first printed music in England to the owl trinkets of the composer Oliver Nusson and one of the finest Stradivarius violins in the world. Principal of the Royal Academy of Music, Jonathan Freeman Atwood. When the Academy was formed in 1822, Beethoven is still alive. So there's this sort of sense that Britain needs a conservatoire that's going to reflect this great art form that hasn't really taken off in the ways that it has and has established itself in the continent. The English-speaking world is very conscious of this and wants to make its mark. Although London was a great place for concerts and a great place for making money if you were a musician and a publisher, it wasn't really a great place for indigenous creative musicians to impart their work. So the Academy was founded very much by very successful pedagogues from uh, European countries and therefore the, the repertoire that was performed in the early concerts, indeed the first concert in 1823, you have Beethoven, Rossini, Mozart... And, of course, Weber is a very important figure because he was in London in the early years. He conducted the Academy's first orchestra in 1826. He composed his opera Oberon on a table that is in the principal's flat and was a great friend of one of the founding fathers of the Academy, Sir George Smart. It was, of course, George Smart who left the Academy the presentation copy in Mendelssohn's hand of the Overture of Midsummer's Night Dream, which is one of our great, uh, great autographs. So for the first 50 or 60 years of the Academy's existence, it became a place where continental music was often performed for the first time. So early Bach performances that hadn't happened anywhere other than Germany, Beethoven, Mozart... The Academy put on a performance of the Marriage of Figaro in 1830, 
with Sterndale Bennett, who was to become principal in the 1860s as Carabino, um, as a 14-year-old boy at that stage. And so you've got this history, which is, to a certain extent, reflected in some of the artefacts that we have. In this room, in the principal's office, the one that I'm most fond of is this portrait here of Sir Arthur Sullivan, who was, of course, the Sullivan as in uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. The only reason he was a student was because he was funded by a scholarship which was set up on Mendelssohn's death and a number of benefit concerts happened in the 1850s where Jenny Lind and others performed to establish a fund which still exists called the Mendelssohn Scholarship Foundation. In the principal's office, there's also Wagner's music stand, Mozart's table, and a beautiful wooden cabinet that served as Henry Wood's library, where all the scores for the proms were kept until about 50 years ago. The treasures here include Debussy's La Mer and Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces, both with the composer's annotations, and the coloured pencils that Henry Wood used to mark his scores. When it comes to the scores, unlike, say, the British Library, we don't exhibit them regularly because we have a museum, which is a very important part of our life, but it's a museum mainly for our instruments. So the manuscripts are used for research purposes primarily. They're used for teaching very regularly, and we love bringing them out and inspiring students. (laughs) When Andrew Gourlay was conducting the Mendelssohn I got it out of the box, the librarian very kindly entrusting me to take it into the Duke's Hall and and to show him. I hadn't actually warned him, so his jaw dropped. He had Mendelssohn's own hand in front of the piece he was conducting in front of the orchestra. There is something really magical in seeing a historical score in real life for the first time, a kind of connection with the composer and the world that they lived in. But dangers lurk in the dark corners. Uh, I'm Ian Breary from the uh, digitisation department at the Royal Academy Music Museum. Everywhere has got bugs. You'll find bugs in every everybody's home and every every room, so... As long as there's not more than, you know, a handful, then it's not, not really a problem. The, the silverfish, horrible little things slivering around everywhere. They like moisture, so if you've got a moisture problem with uh, air conditioning or whatever, then you might find silverfish. They can eat through paper, so it's uh, not a good thing to find them in a library. Ian uses blunder traps dotted around the building to get early warning of any infestations, but his weapon of choice is keeping things dry. We're all pests. All pests need something to eat and something to drink. So if you can take one or both of those things away, then all the better. So if you've got moisture in your room, then they've got something to drink. If you can take that away, then they won't stay. They'll move on. We have an environmental control system so that all the moisture is taken out of the air. You have to have the humidity and the temperature correct and then you're okay. 
Cathy Adamson was the librarian at the Royal Academy of Music for 24 years. As librarian, the one thing that we want to do is to make the material available to people. We want them to be able to find what we have in the collection and then to have access to it. So one of the things that I used to love to do, and I hope it continues, is that once a year for the choral direction class, they would request the use of the Cantionis Sacrae by Bird and Talis. It's an Elizabethan publication and we would sit round the table and the teacher of the class, Paddy Russell, would tell everybody about how the publication came to be and we sing Onata Looks from it. We're going to sing a piece called Onata Looks de Lumine by Thomas Tallis, who is a great English composer of the mid 16th century. He was born in 1505 and died in 1585, known in his own time as the father of music. And the piece is taken from a published collection of 1575, Canzoni Sacre, publication which he shared with his colleague and who had been a pupil of his, William Bird. It's one of my favourite items in the collection because it has the whole history of music publishing in the United Kingdom wrapped up in it because Bird and Tallis had the monopoly on printing music at the time. So nobody else was allowed to even produce music staves on a piece of paper. We have the original part books. And the extraordinary thing is that particularly before they were restored about four or five years ago, um, you could actually smell London. You could smell the pages and you could smell wood smoke um, or in, in the pages. And they, they, they've been rebound and they, you, you can't quite smell it the way it was, but it was extraordinary. Yes, you do have to be a little bit careful with the paper, although it's pretty robust. We make sure that everybody's washed their hands beforehand and I'm, I'm also I'm sitting right there around the table with them so to make sure that they don't turn the pages too... Um, robustly. This particular little piece um, is the smallest item in this collection uh, and it's a setting of the first verse of an office hymn for the Feast of the Transfiguration. The thing that I liked was getting the originals out and having the students realise that this was this was something that was used at the time of the composers. So we did a similar thing with a Haydn quartet and it was a printed copy, it wasn't a manuscript or anything, but it was published during Haydn's lifetime. So I remember one of the students saying, is that like the real thing? And I said, no, it's not like the real thing, it is the real thing. Haydn, chances are Haydn actually looked at this and, and declared it okay for publication. Have we all sung this piece? Yeah. Have you? No? You don't know, Tyler, that's fine. I mean, can we just get on and, and just sing a little bit? It's, it's just a tiny little hymn, and you really have the tune. It's a tune and a bass, essentially, with three voices adding a little bit of a little bit of continuo in the middle.
In a building dedicated to creating musicians of the future, this tangible proximity to the past and to all the performance traditions and styles that developed in the centuries between Talis's London and the London of today is thrilling. And it doesn't stop with rare scores, Tudor wood smoke and Edwardian pencils. When we were researching another episode in this series about the brilliant and glamorous pianist Harriet Cohen, we were able to handle the gold charm bracelet given to her by Arnold Bax and Rafe Vaughan Williams, each tinkling charm commemorating a significant performance in Cohen's career. I think the first thing to note is it's actually really quite heavy. It says gold leaf engraved on both sides, but I think it's gold. The weight of it is definitely gold. And yes, without actually putting it on, I would say this stands up to the small hands statement because she certainly had a narrow wrist. Harriet Cohen was said, even by herself, to have extremely small hands. So each of the leaves represents, I think, a world premiere. Or perhaps just her premiere performances in those cities. And there's one that's got a typo. Helsinski for Helsinki. Um, quite broad double chain with a nice secure clasp here. And these rather lovely sort of narrowish tapered leaves. A little bit like the leaves on an olive tree. And here we are. Holland, the Concertgebouw, Bach Concerto number two. Okay, I'm looking on the reverse. Palestine Symphony, open brackets, Sargent, Venice Festival. Ah, Bach's Concerto. September the 11th, 1953? Or is that 1933? I can't read it. It's exquisite. I wonder how frequently, if ever, she actually wore it. You certainly could not play the piano while you were wearing this. Ah, this is the gift tag, as it were, also made of gold. Harriet Cohen, in admiration from Arvon Williams and Arnold Bax. And this is the pleasing sound it makes. Maintaining the collection isn't simply a question of careful handling and storage. In the Lutia's workshop, a small team of dedicated individuals make practical magic with lathes and planes and pegs and pigments, supporting the student violinists, viola players, cellists, lutinists and guitarists in their efforts to make the most beautiful sounds. Okay, my name is Barbara Meyer, and I'm the curator of the string instruments. And I arrived at the academy in at the beginning of 2013. And I'm overlooking the plucked and bowed string instruments. And how many instruments in total is that? Bob? So probably about 300, three, maybe two, 350, and um, also a, a bow collection. Carefully brushing the instrument from the inside, we're just removing dust so we can see the wood surface and assess whether there are any problems or cracks or whatever. 
We don't use the sandpaper hardly ever, but for fingerboards. Fingerboards need, they, it's called, some people call it shooting, others call it dressing a fingerboard. And it's part of a regular repair or maintenance job on every string instrument because the metal strings wear the fingerboard, even though it's ebony, is very, very hard wood. And occasionally you have almost like visible grooves in a fingerboard and those need to be adjusted. And then we had planing of wood, which of course is a is a regular occurrence in a workshop. And depending on the type of wood, it will sound really quite different. Well, you would be preparing small pieces of wood for certain repairs, or you would be preparing maybe counterforms. Sometimes we, as you can see on the instrument, we reinforce cracks or sometimes strengthen the instrument, the inside, the plates, or the ribs. I was really fascinated by what you were doing with those uh, three bridges, um, dropping them on the table. Tell, tell me about the process of listening when you're working with wood. It's a common way of assessing among musical instrument makers. You, um, even the wood, the raw planks for instruments, there are so many ways of assessing, but just gently kind of rubbing or stri striking you, knocking, you hear pieces of wood or small wood planks have a certain tone. A similar way of assessing maybe the quality or the hardness of the wood, we, we use it for some posts and also for bridges, as you have seen. So comparing different pieces of wood on the same surface and just listening to what they sound like. I think it just gives you a little reading of how hard maybe the wood is and a little bit of the way it, it how fast or how slow it grew and how dense the wood is. Sound is a very common parameter for musical instrument makers, I think. Imke van der Werf is one of the luthiers working part-time in the workshop. Uh, yeah, I think you use it together with feeling also, and with yeah, with just by doing it very often, you you get some kind of subconscious um, knowledge or experience, and then then you just get an instinct of if you if it's sounding bright or dark, and then you you think if this cello has a really dark sound, but you want it to be brighter, you choose the bright bridge, obviously. In a climate-controlled glass case, a few steps from the Lutier's workshop, is the most stunning instrument in the collection, a Stradivarius violin that was made in Cremona in 1709 and was later named after the Italian virtuoso Giovanni Battista Viotti, who moved to London in 1792. It's an instrument that the Canadian violinist and guest professor James Ennis knows and loves. I've been lucky to see the instrument a lot and play on it a good amount. And every time I open the case, it sort of takes my breath away <laughs> with just how, how just beautiful it is. You know how sometimes you see those movies 
you know, that the protagonist will open up the chest of treasure and it's, it's underlit, right? <laughs> That's sort of the way it feels with this thing. Like it, it just, it, it, it has uh, an internal glow to the, to the varnish that is just kind of unlike almost anything else. that no one has played a note on this since the last time I played it, which was in November of 2019. <laughs> Can you explain why you, why you think that? Well, first of all, I know the way that they take care of the collection here. Uh, but it, but you, you'd get a sense of, of, you know, an instrument being a little bit rigid when it has not kind of flexed. You know, the, the, the amazing thing about the tables of these instruments is they're extremely flexible this way and extremely rigid that way so um, I think basically you know wood sits long enough and it doesn't it doesn't vibrate and it has or it doesn't vibrate in the same way and it has a slightly taut feeling to it that um, starts to waken up and gain a little bit of flexibility as the wood is vibrating more uh, the table, when I refer to the table, that's basically the top of an instrument. Um, I don't know why they call it the table. You wouldn't want to put a drink on it, but there you have it. It's like a spring. You know, if a, if a spring has just been sitting, it, it's not as springy. <laughs> you know, it gets a, a little bit more flexible as it's moved. It always sounds beautiful, <laughs> but there's a an immediacy that becomes, it, it gets quicker with the response the more that it's played.
is the strength of that sound. It's really, it's big, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's big in a, in a deceptive kind of way. I mean, violins, they're not loud, you know, the way like a trombone is exactly, but Stradivari's one of the things that makes him really unique, I think, is his understanding of projection was really, really ahead of his time. At the time that he was building, I mean, he, of course, he was building them for you know royalty and nobility, and he was a very wealthy man. <laughs> his instruments were really coveted. But by players, it was a little bit more mixed because a lot of the, the top violinists of the day preferred these very sort of sweet, smaller instruments. But Stradivari was strangely focused on projection during a time where that wouldn't have seemed to have been a big priority. People were playing in smaller spaces, but this was a focus of his uh, really kind of throughout his career. He wanted to get that mix of tonal beauty with projection that could fill larger spaces. And it was really in the 19th century when concert halls were getting bigger, people were performing for larger audiences. It was at that point that some of the really coveted, you know, German violins uh, or instruments even by uh, earlier Italian makers, they they didn't quite take off in the same way that the instruments of Stradivari and, and his contemporary, or basically his contemporary, Guarneri del Gesù, like those instruments, as people were sort of adapting them for bigger spaces and getting them a little bit punchier. They just, uh, they really kind of soared to new heights. And the thing that I think is particular about Stradivari's method of, of tonal projection is that it it tends to fill a space no matter the size of that space. And it's not that it's louder, it's just it speaks into corners of the room. That's why a great Stradivari, you know, playing it with an orchestra, it can draw the attention even when the whole orchestra is playing along. Uh, sometimes people, they're like, oh, that, that violin was really loud. It's like, well, it wasn't that the violin was really loud, but it was what your ear was listening to. It was what drew, drew your attention. Nearly all of the instruments and bows looked after by Barbara Mayer and her team are loaned out for playing by students and other musicians. 
not the Viotti, because it's such a pristine example of the pinnacle of Cremonese violin making. Sheldon Gabriel is the instrument loans coordinator, a sort of matchmaker between students, instruments and bows. So how delicate a business is it, fixing up a student with the right bow? How much of it is the suitability of the bow to the violin? And how much of it is the suitability of the bow to the hand of the player? I think it's all completely equal. They're all equally as important. It's amazing how different violins, violas, cellos and bows perform with different people. And I think that's related in some way to the kind of the muscle structure and the playing style of the player as much as it is the actual kind of instrument or bow, like how it's constructed, the weight, the flexibility. I think all of these components are extremely important and you might find an instrument or a bow that doesn't work very well with one student may work extremely well with another and there may be a bow that doesn't work well with a violin, a particular violin, but it might work amazingly with another one. And the longer that you've been doing this this job, I mean, it sounds like you're choreographing a sort of three-way dance, uh, player, instrument, bow. Um, have you developed a kind of instinct for what's going to fit that person? So many times, um, like a student will come and say, oh, my violin's too big, it's too small, like this is not correct, or my bow's too heavy. But when you look at it, it's not necessarily the size, it's something else. There's a problem like maybe the bridge position is wrong, the setup or like the the sounding length of the string or there's some other adjustments that you need to make. So it's really good to get all this information. But sometimes if you just go to try and appease them purely on one factor, you're gonna head down the wrong path. That's what I've kind of learned. You need to just look at the bigger picture and see what's kind of going on and just provide multiple options, really. There's one collection of treasures that is not on display to the public, and it's devoted to a man who is much loved in the Academy, the late composer and conductor Oliver Nusson. Philip Cashin, head of composition, invited me to take a look. So this cabinet has been specially built to house books about Ollie Nusson's favourite composers, and we also have some scores and a few recordings, but mainly it's just books, you know, Mahler, Stravinsky, Debussy... Stockhausen, Henser, Takamitsu, and Berg, some books on Babulez about conducting, all, all sorts of interesting things. I think there's about seven different editions of Moby Dick as well. <laughs> and all these little <laughs> quirks. And the objects which are leaping out to me from here are all these owls. Yes, Ollie loved owls. He had a real passion for them. He had stepping stones in his garden that were owls, and the lies lit up. He had, like, you know, solar powered. Yeah, there are owls everywhere, owl bags. Um, this is my favourite. This is a, an owl metronome. Let's it up, see what happens. Yeah. Fantastic. I love the, the, the fact that you slide the bow tie up and yes. down to set, to set the <laughs> tempo. And this is a little owl. It's got owl, owl barn bird written on it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's combining all these very composers with owls there. And there's also the Ohoto Tugisu here, the uh, little bird. Um, 
about the significance of the little Japanese bird? Um, well, Ollie got back in Tokyo, and one of the last pieces he wrote was Oho Toto Gisu for the BCMG, for Claire Booth and BCMG. So, yeah, that's, that's the piece. And the piece is shaped... I think he wrote the piece, so it has like a structure which, which is shaped like Mount Fuji. That was kind of the idea behind the piece. And he quotes the, the bird in, in the piece. So, and he wrote that whilst he was... Um, uh, was uh, teaching her so that's yeah that's I mean his last few pieces I think he wrote whilst he was um, professor here at the academy and there's a few little, wonderful little things here as well I think these uh, I think he used these in a piece I'm not sure these kind of little percussion instruments I'm not sure which orchestra piece they were in but they're monkeys yeah little monkeys oh yeah they're all sweet two more different pictures little soldiers I suppose. Fabulous. Yeah. So oh, there's another owl there. Owls oh. everywhere. <laughs> and the picture of Stravinsky was always as well up there. Um, but I just like to have Stravinsky up there looking down on us, making sure we're uh, doing the right thing. <laughs> Ollie was the Richard Rodney Bennett Professor of Music here um, for four years, and he conducted the orchestra, the Manson Ensemble, which is the new music ensemble, and he taught composition in the department and gave seminars and was just a wonderful, wonderful person to have around and in the building. And he was my old teacher as well, so there's a very personal connection for me. We had him in as a kind of visiting composer for a year or so and then we created the post for him so I think it was the last five, four or five years of his life he was coming in every term and, and teaching conducting and, and, and teaching which was, which was really great Do you think it's fair to say he's probably one of the most loved composers Absolutely, yes, yeah, absolutely Yeah, and one of the most influential as well um, as a composer and as a conductor because obviously he really championed and really made you know a, very much part of what he did as a conductor was to champion young composers and to give lots of young composers their first probably big professional performances and to commission very young composers as well through his work at Tanglewood and just through his, his love for, for new music and, and young composers. So he is incredibly important since, you know, since the 1960s on, really, and a huge source of inspiration for us all. What was he like as a teacher? He, he was an amazing teacher. What was incredible about Ollie, because when I had lessons with him when I was at Guildhall when I was 22, 23... And I was probably just showing him rubbish. Um, I kind of cringe when I think, you know, what I took to him. But, but obviously he could see something. And what was wonderful was looking back, he could kind of see into the future and see what... You know, he, he, he was sort of showing me scores like Tippett and Stravinsky and all some of his own sketches. And he, he think he, he kind of knew where I was going, even though I maybe didn't know myself. You know, and, he, and he just had this incredible ability to kind of know what it was that you needed, even though you didn't know yourself yet. I always feel when I'm composing that Ollie's going to get a bit upset in a minute. I always feel that Ollie's kind of watching, you know, he's looking over my shoulder. And one of the great things about having Ollie here when he was working at, whenever I was in the middle of the day, I always rang him when I was in the middle of working because just hearing him talk down the phone was so exciting, right up to the very end, and so inspirational just to hear Ollie talking down the phone. It made me want to, you know go back into the other room and get composing again. So he was just incredibly, um, you know, he, he just was a really inspiring person and he just knew everything about 
music in every piece ever written. He's a genius, basically, and a lovely person. From owls and monkeys to bugs, bees and bows, there are more treasures in this building than those displayed on walls and in cases. The Academy's real treasures are its people. Whether writing new music, singing from a Tudor part book, poring over Mendelssohn's handwriting, flexing the glorious sound of a precious violin, or playing a symphony by Beethoven, who knew the owner of that violin, this is a living tradition, tended by a small army of experts in different fields. The past, present and future converge here, and every piece of music that was once new is made new again when it is performed by a new generation of musicians. was episode five of short stories 200 years of the royal academy of music it was presented by anna pickard and was produced by natalie steed the full list of music featured in this episode can be found in the episode description to hear more short stories subscribe to our podcast or go to the royal academy of music website and search for podcasts